This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with, speaking of a difficult economy, what if you're nearing retirement? Are you getting ready for retirement, the golden years? Have you saved enough gold? for your retirement years. Brand new study out on this says most Canadians who are nearing retirement have not saved enough money to comfortably retire. Not even close. Got Rabina Ahmed Hawk standing by to discuss this. First, have a listen to this report. Global News reporter Sean Prevel. Canadians gearing up for retirement may have to make some adjustments to avoid a bumpy road ahead. A new report by Deloitte Canada found only 14% of near retirees, those between 55 and 64, are expected to be comfortable when they leave their jobs. But about 55% may have to make some lifestyle changes to avoid outliving their financial savings. Uh, they, they just haven't saved enough to be able to sustain their lifestyle, especially against the rising cost environment. Okay. Only 14% of Canadians who are nearing retirement age have saved enough money to live comfortably. They're going to have to adjust their expectations or lifestyle in retirement, or maybe just don't retire. Keep on working. I've heard from a lot of seniors who are doing that. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Rabina Ahmed Hawk. Rabina is a personal finance expert. Absolutely recommend her show for what it's worth on Global. Rabina, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Okay, this is a really interesting study here. It was done by Deloitte Canada, and looking at some of the analysis from this company, Rabina, they are saying that they find these these findings are, they call them staggering, that only 14% of Canadians near retirement have saved enough money. Do, do you find that surprising? I mean, you talk to people all the time who are trying to get ready for retirement, right? I do, and I find it surprising, and I also am shocked by it at the same time uh, because I didn't think it would be that bad, but I knew that things are getting or things are getting worse for Canadians. I mean, it's not just the current economy; it's the fact that so many Canadians work in a in a situation where they have no pension, so it's up yeah. to them to save in their retirement. And uh, you know, as it is with most of us, with uh, human nature, you know, it's difficult sometimes to find the money to save unless you're being forced to, or you find other things to do with that money when it adds up to a, 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 a sum. I mean, this is really, um, you know, it's sad for those who are getting close to retirement and thinking, I may have to work longer than I wanted to, I may have to scale back on my lifestyle, but it's also a cautionary tale for those who are in their early 20s and 30s, especially, uh, to start saving now for retirement because you will eventually also get there. Yeah, for sure. You start early. This is what I've been trying to tell my kids, you know, start putting even just a little bit of money away when you're young. 
and get that compound interest working for you. Do you think that this is a bit of a wake-up call for a lot of seniors? If you're getting close to retirement age, maybe, you know, most people maybe have got a little bit of money put away in an RSP. Maybe they don't have a pension, but they've got Canada Pension Plan that they're planning to use. And then they start doing the math as you get closer to the retirement time and going, uh-oh, wait a second here. The math is not working. I mean, do you ever talk to people who are surprised that they're in that spot? They didn't maybe think, maybe they didn't think they'd be in that spot, but they are. Yeah, oh, all the time. And uh, a lot of people felt that things would just sort of work themselves out. And I think that this yeah. is, you know, really a, a good way of understanding that it, 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 it does in some ways work itself out, but you have to set it up to work itself out. If you don't save anything, um, you are going to get into a position where you are completely reliant on uh, government benefits like CPP and OAS. And if you think back to when those two benefits were created back in the 60s, they were meant to be sweeteners added on to workplace pensions. They were not meant to be your sole source of income because they're not very much money. It's a few thousand dollars even at the max if you add those both up. And that's not enough for most of us to live in any parts of the country where we're seeing rents, you know, especially in, in British Columbia, you know, you can't really rent anything for less than a few thousand dollars, uh, especially in the bigger cities. And for many, that means, you know, really rethinking what retirement looks like uh, and maybe changing their situation a little bit uh, to, in order to afford all the things they need. Speaking to Rabina Ahmed Hawk, we're talking about Canadians who are not ready for retirement. This brand new survey out showing just a small percentage of Canadians near retirement age have got enough money saved up. So how much do you need? Like I remember years ago, there was a, a rule that said, well, you should, you should try to save up a million dollars for retirement. I don't know a lot of people have saved up a million dollars, but I remember hearing that figure. Like you need, do most people need more than that? Well, so it all depends on what you plan on doing. I mean, it's such a it's it's such a um, disservice that we do when we put out these big numbers and say that's what you need to do because it does two things. One, it it it, it dissuades people who just feel like I'm never going to get there, so why even bother? And then secondly, if you've already saved a million, but maybe you live a very lavish lifestyle, you may feel like oh, I could continue. I can start spending now because I've saved enough, but the lifestyle that you want in retirement is going to cost more. So it's really about using a retirement calculator, figuring out what your retirement looks like, and then using how much you have saved to project what you're going to have in your nest egg when you do retire. And then you have to adjust how much you're putting in there. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot of seniors or those who are reaching uh, close to 65 have homes uh, that are worth a lot more than what they bought. So, you know, yeah. thinking about downsizing, all of that is going to help you take some equity on your home. I think, uh, you know, this is true for my own family as well, too. It's very hard sometimes for people to sell that family home, but that can be the solution to some of your financial problems. Yeah, I mean, if someone's fortunate enough, if you own if you own a home, yeah, you certainly look at real estate values, have they've gone up here, you're in a pretty good spot in that situation. Like, what would you recommend do people do a reverse mortgage? Are those a good deal? Someone told me a reverse mortgage is a bad deal. Yeah, I, I would agree with them. I mean, a reverse mortgage, uh, you have to be in a very specific situation in order for it to be a good deal. Um, you you don't want to leave any financial legacy at all uh, because the reverse yeah. mortgage is going to probably eat up most of the money that you have in your home, um, that you are comfortable with the fact that you are going to be paying higher interest on the money that they are giving you in payments. 
Um, even though you're not paying that interest, that will be added on when they find when when that house finally um, either sells or you pass away. So they will take that interest at that time. Yeah. So there's a lot of things to consider. I would say getting a home equity line of credit and using that as a way to fund some things in your retirement may be a better way to control how much money uh, you have coming in and out. Uh, because there may be times where you don't need all of that money and that you're getting uh, the, you know this reverse mortgage and it's money that's, that's sitting in the bank. Uh, so those are, I, I would say reverse mortgage is one of the la- last options if, if, if it is something that you are considering. Rabina, thank you for coming on today with your thoughts on this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Let's talk now about the B.C. government bringing the hammer down here on municipalities, forcing them to build more housing, densify neighborhoods, Now, this includes the multiplex plan. This would allow up to six homes to be built on a single-family lot. So tear down those detached houses, build six condos on that lot instead. Now, we need more housing. Nobody can deny that. But this is supposed to be municipal jurisdiction, right? Municipal governments are responsible for community planning, and zoning. Have a listen to, now we got a backlash going on here against this, but have a listen to the housing minister here, Ravi Kalon here. Here he is talking about why the province is doing this, why they're bringing the hammer down to municipalities here. Have a listen. The targets for each municipality has been set, meaning more homes will be built soon for people in communities that they love. These housing targets put forward by the province mark a 30% increase in overall housing to be built in these communities compared to what's been previously planned. Yeah, you municipalities, get going here. We want you to build 30% more housing than what you were planning. I had Kalon on the show here the other day, and I, I told him about some of the backlash he's, we're getting from municipalities on this, some of them not happy. And I asked him, why is the province doing this? Here's what he told me. Have a listen. The reality we're dealing with is we've got people right now, young people, uh, working full-time jobs, living in RVs, uh, living in encampments because they can't find places to live. Okay, yeah, we, we got a housing crisis. We need more housing. This is why they're doing it. But now you get this backlash going on here. Did you see this, uh, an editorial in today's Vancouver Sun And it says these are one-size-fits-all regulations that in 
neighborhoods that are already congested or have heritage assets or already have affordable rental buildings. This is a blunt policy by the province here. This is Mike Harcourt wrote this in the Sun today, the former NDP premier. <laughs> I wonder what David Eby thinks of that. Thanks a lot, Mike. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Michael Pratt. Michael is a city councillor with the township of Langley. Hey, Michael, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it too. So I know you've got concerns about this, right? Tell me your concerns here about what the province is doing. Yeah, and I think I should preface it by saying I'm a, I'm a mid-20s renter who has no prospect of ever owning a home in this, the town he grew up in. So I, I don't mm. really have a vested interest in, in seeing housing not built. In fact, in the first year uh, I've been on council, I've approved um, with my council colleagues over 6,000 units of housing, the vast majority being the missing middle type that the province is looking for. I think the challenge is, is that uh, we have some municipalities who have access to uh, rapid transit. We have some municipalities where their schools are emptying to the point where they're talking about closing them. Um, and they have a lot of infill potential. And then there's other municipalities out maybe further away than most people are used to, to thinking about. A lot of people who don't make it east of Boundary Road might not ever uh, think of the township of Langley. But we have thousands of acres of greenfield land left where we still need to build new schools, where we need to identify where the detention ponds and the parks are going to go. And we have plans for that. And we have an idea of what that's going to cost. And we have uh, a long range vision for the kind of community that we thought we were going to be building. And it is just a challenge to, to be lumped in with a lot of other municipalities that haven't been meeting housing targets, that haven't been approving the housing that we need. And so it is a challenge for us. Yeah, so what would be the impact of that, the government sort of doing the, what they're doing here, sort of bringing a hammer down and, and forcing municipalities to densify? So in some of those areas, Councillor, where you're just describing there, what would be the impact if suddenly the province is saying, like, hang on a second here, you have to allow, uh, you know, six plexes, four plexes on these lots? What would be the impact there on your plans? So it, it's a it's a two pronged approach, really, when you're talking about the township, because we do have some older neighborhoods that are uh, single family that are the types of neighborhoods that the province might be looking at and saying, hey, they're not uh, they're not dense enough or they're not changing quickly enough. And that's a different conversation. The the uptake in building fourplexes and sixplexes in those types of neighborhoods in other jurisdictions where they brought in these policies hasn't really uh, amounted to a whole lot. In, and I think in Oregon. Uh, the city of Portland only had a few hundred built in the three years since the policy has been approved. So yeah. that's one piece. The other piece that really has a, a profound impact on uh, the greenfield municipalities. So municipalities like the township, like the city of Surrey, Maple Ridge or Coquitlam, these places that are still building in, in newer subdivisions. We just approved after about a decade long planning, planning process, uh, three neighborhood plans in the Brookswood Fernridge area. Those are in South Langley. And we planned for approximately 15,000 units of housing, about 47,000 people. Mix of housing from small lot, single family to townhouse, row house, all the way up to apartments and, and mixed use communities. And the challenge now is the school projections that we made for that and other services, community police officers, uh, fire halls, parks, all those different important pieces, we, we projected based on 47,000 people. Now, if we took all of the single family lots that uh, were proposed as part of the plan, that population skyrockets to over 100,000 people. We know Whoa. developers will develop 
and builders will build. And so if we approve a single family subdivision for 20 lots, and all of a sudden now they have the ability to build four units on each lot, that seriously impacts our projections. Now, that might be the, the intention of the province. And I think that it's another conversation that we have to have around, okay, what sort of community are we building? But that's the impact that these plans have had on the financial projections of a municipality like ours that I don't think the province really has come to terms with. And I don't think that they know exactly what's the impact they're going to have on municipalities like ours. Yeah, boy, I think that's a really clear illustration of the, the, the challenge here, that you have municipalities who put a lot of time and effort into, into community planning. And now suddenly you got the province saying, oh, hang on. No, no, no. We're going to tell you what to do here. You're going to put a lot more housing in here, a lot more people. So would you say sort of bottom line is that there's not enough infrastructure in these in these areas? Like you mentioned, are there, is there adequate fire protection? Are there enough schools? Uh, is the sewage system up to capacity? Is there enough parking on the streets? Is that one of the problems? There's There's just not enough infrastructure here to handle all these people? That's definitely a part of it. And and some of that yeah. infrastructure, right, it, it, it's in the municipal jurisdiction. That's a problem that we have to figure out how to solve. And it'd be nice if we had some proactive discussions with the province around, hey, we're going to expect you to do this, but we're also going to come to the table with some funding to help. I think a bigger mm -hmm. challenge for us and, you know, the township of Langley between 2016 and 2021, we grew by 13 percent. We were the second fastest growing city in the province. Um, you know, in the last couple of years of that time frame, while Vancouver was shrinking, Langley Township was still growing. And so we deal with different problems. We have school sites that the township has acquired that have been sitting empty for years because the province hasn't come to the table and built them. And so we're continuously being asked to approve housing that we badly need and the type of housing that families can afford. But we are building it and people are moving in and they're looking at across the street at a vacant school site that should have been built already. Yeah, I won't belabor the part about, you know, our healthcare system. That's the challenge that other many different generations of governments have faced. And I don't want to needlessly antagonize anybody, but there are these challenges that are pretty unique to communities like ours. And there's there's solutions that there, there could be that are not necessarily the, the most, I'll say, flashy, but they would be really, really useful at delivering a lot of housing that I just don't yeah. think that uh, upper levels of government are really entertaining right now. Yeah. Speaking to Langley Township Councillor Michael Pratt, talking about the B.C. government's housing plan here, forcing municipalities to densify these neighborhoods. I had David Eby on the show here uh, a while back. We talked about these issues, Michael, and one of the things I told him was I'm hearing from councillors who are saying, you know, even one of the basic challenges here is if you densify like this, are you going to have Carmageddon? Are you going to have people just battling it out, trying to find places places to park? Like, where is everyone going to park if you densify like this? His answer was quite interesting. I want to play it here for you to get, get your thoughts. So this is David Eby speaking to me on a recent show. I asked him, where are people going to park? Here's what he said. And we need to respond to this housing crisis proportionally. It's serious for families out there. And I know sometimes it's a pain to look for parking for a little bit longer. But to compare that to the, the strain and stress of families that, and individuals who just can't find a place to live, um, I think right. we need to just refocus. Yeah, we just need to refocus here. And if it's going to be a pain in the butt to find a place to park, well, you'll just have to live with that. You know, maybe there, if you have to drive your kid to a school mm -hmm. farther away from your home because the local school is, is full up, 
I guess that's something you'll just have to deal with, too. We, we got a housing crisis here going on. Michael, what do you think of that? We, we absolutely do have a housing crisis, but if you ever come out to the township, you'll recognize that we've also got a public transportation crisis. Um, mm. the, the reality is, is that for myself, I'm getting downtown for, to do my master's thesis at uh, SFU, and it takes me about two, two hours just to get on the bus and then the train to get down there. So if we're asking people to uh, live in, in neighborhoods like this, where, yeah, parking is going to be a premium and it's going to be a ch- challenge to find parking. Well, it's easy enough in Vancouver or in Burnaby or in Richmond or in these places where transit's actually accessible and reliable to, to say, maybe we should cut down to one car per household. But the fact of the matter is out here in the township, we haven't seen the investment needed in transit yet in order to justify to the people that we're asking to live in these neighborhoods to only go down to one vehicle per household or two vehicles per household. It's, it's simply not practical right now. Yeah. And I know that there's the chicken and the egg conversation but again, if the province is asking us to make these very drastic changes that you could argue are good or bad, and I think that we all recognize we're in a housing crisis, I want to fix this crisis as much as possible. But if we're going to ask the uh, municipalities to make these big changes, then the province has got to come to the table with big dollars. Michael, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on this today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. Let's talk about highway and road safety in our province. Uh, We just went through a deadly weekend in British Columbia last weekend of fatal crashes, and now police getting set for the annual holiday crackdown. It is counter-attack time. These are police-run roadblocks that catch drug and alcohol-impaired drivers, help to reduce injuries, and fatalities. This counterattack campaign has been in operation in British Columbia for over 35 years. Do not drink and drive. This is the most important thing you can remember at any time, but be aware the counterattack is set to start. And it's not just drug and alcohol impaired drivers. They can catch you for distracted driving, not wearing a seatbelt, a burned out headlight. Yeah, they can get you on lots of different infractions. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Paul Doroshenko, traffic lawyer, Acumen Law. Paul, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Okay, Paul, when does this start, counterattack? When does it begin? It starts Monday, and police officers have been telling us that they really are ramping it up this year because of the beginning of the pandemic. They were short-staffed. Uh, they had trouble manning uh, roadblocks and really putting up a, 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 the campaign that we normally expect. Uh, and it's going to be a little bit of an overreaction this year. Uh, we're expecting a lot of roadblocks. Really? What, what do you mean overreaction? Well, I mean, it's uh, people have sort of gotten used to not seeing counterattack roadblocks over the last few years. The pandemic okay. started. Uh, and I said, as I said, they, they had trouble getting the staff uh, available to be able to actually set up a roadblock and have it there for a number of hours and, and have a number of these operations going on uh, at any given time. So we just have not seen the same level of enforcement uh, that we saw before. And the intention this year, my understanding is, is to make sure that people understand that you, your likelihood of going through a roadblock on your way home is significant. Uh, yeah. they, 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 you know, they're, they're putting in the resources this year to make it happen. For sure. I mean, anyone who drives a lot is probably familiar with going through one of these. I've gone through them many times. Where do they typically set up? I mean, do they set up in different locations every day or how does that work? 
Well, I mean, the idea is surprise. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I don't know that that's always the best thing. I think that probably the best thing is to make sure that people know that there's just a likelihood of it. And, and if you see it, even if it's going the opposite direction, it's going to discourage you and remind you about it because that's the education portion of it. But, you know, the idea is to set up somewhere where you don't anticipate it. Uh, yeah. And often it's people going home from the Christmas party because everybody's, you know, celebrating and the, the season and uh, heading home from the Christmas party at a time that you don't normally drive that route. And you've had a few drinks with your colleagues at work. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the whole idea. And you come around the corner and next thing you know, there's the uh, there's the the uh, pylons and the signs letting you know that you're going through a, a roadblock. Um, you know, the, 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 the hope is to have contact with as many drivers as possible over the season, uh, not just for the purpose of, of sussing out those people who have been, uh, who have been drinking and are, are over the limit, but also just as a reminder to everybody that this is your obligation to be sober on the road. Okay. Let, let me ask you about the law around this because so uh, uh, roadblocks are obviously legal. Like the police can legally stop you. Um, at a roadblock, even if they don't have any evidence to suggest that you may be breaking a law, like they don't have to see you, your car weaving or anything like that, right? They don't need any kind of reasonable, don't they need like reasonable grounds to stop you or not? Not in Canada. So long as it's a, a legitimate police purpose, which a roadblock is, uh, yeah. they can stop people to check sobriety. And if you're pulled over by the police, even in a roadblock, you're required to identify yourself, provide your driver's license, state your name, your address, and the name and address of the registered owner of the vehicle. And those are all things that are, you know, it's a brief detention, right? It's, it's a, you're being detained. So upon arrest and detention, normally you get to be informed of the reason of it and your right to counsel, but the right to counsel is suspended. You don't get to talk to a lawyer in those circumstances at that point, uh, because it's a very brief detention. And so yes. the, you'll be on your way quickly if there's no reason for them to detain you further. If there's reason for them to detain you further, then they're entitled to hold you there for a few minutes to investigate, which usually means a roadside breath test. Okay, now speaking of the breath test, are, let's say an, a police officer asks you to blow into a breathalyzer. Are you legally required to comply with that? Yep, it's a criminal offense yep. to refuse to provide a sample, and it's a criminal record, $2,000 fine, one-year driving prohibition. That's the mandatory minimum punishment. A Ooh. lot of people get confused. You know, in some U.S. states, you can refuse a breath test. Uh, you know, in some U.S. states, you don't have to say who you are necessarily when you're pulled over. Uh, in Canada, you've got to identify yourself. Um, interestingly, police officers often ask people their date of birth. That's not something they're entitled to, to ask or you're required to answer, but you are required to identify yourself. And if you uh, are subject to a lawful demand to provide a sample into an approved screening device there at the roadside, you have to do it immediately. You don't get yeah. a chance to phone a lawyer first or call your friend or think about it. You got to do it right then. Uh, and the reason is, I mean, it's fairly, it's, it's minimally intrusive, right? It's not the it's not the end of the world to be asked to do this. Of course, not everybody can do it, and that becomes a problem. Uh, but the police have had the power now for five years to make a uh, a mandatory breath test without even a suspicion that you've been drinking. Yes, right. Yes. So don't they don't pull, drink. They don't drink and drive. Don't don't drink well, and drive. I mean, this is well, the I bottom. Mean, the best is, advice. 
Go ahead. Well, I would say that, you know, you, you can, as a male, you can drink two drinks and you'll still be under 80 milligrams uh, or you'll still be under 50 milligrams, in fact. And same with women can drink one drink. But, you know, Christmas season, when you know you've got a likelihood of going through a roadblock, why would you want to expose yourself to that, you know, scrutiny and, and pull up to a roadblock after having a drink and, and be panicked about, uh, you know, the, the likelihood that you're going to blow and what happens if something goes wrong? So yeah. your best bet is, uh, you know, not to have anything to drink. And I'll tell you, you pull up to the roadblock and even if you're the designated driver, the police are going to assume that you're the designated driver who had at least one or two drinks, which is often the case. People will pull up and say, oh, I'm the designated driver. Then they'll provide a sample. They'll blow fail. So, okay. Speaking of Paul, you know, Paul Dor- this time of year, don't drink. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Paul Doroshenko is my guest. Counterattack roadblock start next week. Okay. Uh, impaired driving from alcohol is one thing. There's a... There's a screening device that they can use, a breathalyzer. Paul, what about, okay, what about drug driving? So what if you've been smoking cannabis? What if you've been using cannabis edibles? You're behind, you're behind the wheel. How does, how do the police detect that? Because there's no screening device for that, right? Let me play a short clip here for you for your thoughts. This is Sergeant Tom Morehouse from the Baltimore Police Department. Here's how they do it there. We'll have increased patrols. We have increased amount of trained officers, of officers who have been through that cannabis training, and they'll be out there looking for those signs of impairment. They'll have trouble controlling their speed. They'll be speeding up and slowing down, having trouble keeping that distance, the, uh, the distance between the car in front of them. Uh, you'll see weaving and things like that. Okay, well, that's evidence, I guess, when the car is moving. But once at a roadblock, Paul, can they screen for cannabis or no? You know, cannabis-impaired driving is the boogeyman. Uh, You think five years ago when we were looking at legalization, all of the discussion was going to be the carnage on the road from cannabis-impaired driving. And this has been now fairly well studied. Uh, And interestingly, um, people who use cannabis regularly are not impaired in their ability to drive if they're using it. Uh, People who use it infrequently usually will think to themselves, I don't want to drive because they often think that they're more impaired than they are. Whereas when you're drinking alcohol, often people get courage and, and, and fail to assess their own condition. Most of the people using cannabis um, think to themselves, driving is a chore I don't want to do, and I'm not comfortable driving in these circumstances. So we're not seeing them. Um, the police are not charging them. We haven't seen a huge increase in 24-hour driving prohibitions for drugs. Um, you know, cannabis was being used in B.C., long before it was legalized uh it's not like it's you know suddenly a new thing and we just don't see those cases and the reason is the people are driving fine and you pull them over and start assessing them and they pass most of the tests uh the Mm. tests aren't really the most useful tests for sussing it out but are they impaired in those circumstances what are the tests when they can pass those tests well it's standardized field sobriety tests so um, the first one that they do is horizontal gaze nystagmus, and nystagmus is just a fancy word for twitching eyes uh, when they get out to the edge. So they force you to look uh, like 45 degree angle each direction to see whether or not your eyes twitch. We know that's fairly effective for alcohol, actually. It's surprisingly effective because it's a, it's a muscle control issue in your eye that you can't control. Uh, not, great for, um, not great for detecting... Uh, most drug impairment. Uh, Then they do the walk and turn, which you've seen probably on YouTube videos and things like that. Uh, The, uh, they do a balance test where you stand on one foot. Um, Those are the tests that they try and do. But the problem is a lot of people, I I can't do them because of 
of physical disability, right? And a lot of people can't. Um, so it's really just an opportunity to keep you there and keep watching you and assessing you. And mm. most of the time, if it's cannabis that people have been using, even if they've been using cannabis, they pass the test. So how are you yeah. going to say that they're impaired? You know, yeah. and we're, I'm not, not not seeing, s- we're not seeing accidents from them either, right? So mm. I'm not surprised to hear there hasn't been a big spike in, in cannabis-related charges there uh, for driving. Paul Doroshenko is my guest. Real quickly, Paul, then we'll take a break here. I fit a couple of calls in on the other side. Um, if you're stopped at a counterattack and they... Can they ticket you for distracted driving? What if the police officer sees you with a cell phone? If you got your cell phone in your hand or on your lap, uh, you can pretty much guarantee you're going to get a ticket. Four demerit ticket, $368. Uh, once that ticket goes on your uh, driver's abstract, you might end up with a driving prohibition for it. So leave the phone in the cradle. Don't touch it. Yeah, good good advice. How about seatbelt? What if they see, okay, what if you're approaching a roadblock, you don't have a seatbelt on, dumb thing to do, a police officer sees you down the road, put the seatbelt on, can they nab you for that? Yeah, sure. Any offense that sure. they observe, right? Uh, you know, there's the evidence is their observation. People often don't seem to understand what evidence is, but the observation of the police officer that you committed an offense uh, is the evidence that they need to issue a ticket. So they can ticket you right there for that. You know, we, we see a lot of uh, end drivers pulling up to the roadblock and they've got uh, too many passengers, for example. Oh. Uh, and they'll end up ticketed for that. These are what, what's the maximum? Things. What's the maximum passengers for an end driver? Yeah, I mean, it depends on if you've got family members and whether or not somebody's old enough to be supervising. But the, the typical thing we see is three, uh, four teenagers in a car and no, no family member. Uh, and they're ticketed for that. But actually, I don't know the maximum amount. I think you're allowed two passengers. Okay. But I'm I got sure. an email from a listener, Paul Lyle, who says, I'd like to see them put a decibel meter at the checkpoints to yeah. ticket for loud vehicles. Can they can they ticket you for excessive noise coming from your vehicle? Here's the thing. In order to be able to test it, they've got to get in your vehicle and start revving it up. And now they're doing a warrantless search of your car. Uh, And then is it how hold close to the exhaust pipe are they holding that device? Uh, And is there any, there's no approved decibel recording device. There's no approved uh, device to, to test the sound of your vehicle. I mean, this is a problem that we've got. I don't know that, uh, that uh, the enforcement with um, a, a punitive scheme like ticketing is really the answer. It might be some other, uh, method of dealing with it. I know you and I have talked about uh, uh, some jurisdictions where they're they're using basically photo radar type things, where they yeah. they detect the sound and and take a photograph of your license plate. It's administrative; it doesn't show up on your driving record, but you pay a fine. Okay. You know, there's got to be a solution in technology. I'm looking forward to seeing it, um, but uh, it's an interesting issue for sure. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Yeah, John in White Rock. Hi, John. Go ahead. Yeah, hi, Mike. Uh, I was involved in a pedestrian accident the other day. I was struck uh, along with uh, another person who was with me. We were knocked down, had to go to the emergency. And I've I've just uh, filed a claim with ICBC. And uh, it looks like, uh, for myself, the doctor told me yesterday, because I've been to the emergency twice, that I, I'll be at least six months healing. I may have to have surgery. Uh, my, my friend uh, is uh, battered up a little bit, too. But the deal is, is that I can't do a bunch of the stuff I normally do, like 
you know, rake my leaves, put up my Christmas lights, and, you know, vacuum the house, just name something, and I'm gibbled. So what do I do? Because they told me, well, they're not going to pay for any domestic help. They'll pay for my physiotherapy or whatever else I need. Uh, I I, I would like some compensation. I don't know how to go about it. How badly are you injured? What happened? Uh, well, I was. I, we were crossing in front of a car, and it, it uh, was stopped. And then it started to drive, and it pushed us, us down. And uh, I fell on the other person. And uh, I've got. Uh, I don't want to actually say the nat- nature of my injury on the radio, but suffice it to say that I'm not be able to use my left arm. And uh, the doctor told me I got to have more tests, but I may require surgery. And he said it's it's like at least six months before it heals up. So. You can consider all the things you can't do. Plus, I'm in pain, having trouble sleeping and uh, um, functioning, putting clothes on and off, taking a shower. Just name something that you do, you know, tying my shoes, <laughs> oh. everything. So Okay. Okay. Th- thank you for that. I'm glad you weren't hurt more seriously, and uh, I wish you a full recovery. But, Paul, do you have any thoughts on that? I'm really sorry to hear about it. And this is one of the frustrating things that uh, all the lawyers who do personal injury in this province are uh, have been you know, outspoken about since uh, the changes to ICBC, back when our premier was the attorney general and responsible for ICBC, uh, they removed a lot of the things that you could be, in my view, properly compensated for. And now, I mean, I would still encourage him to talk to a, a personal injury lawyer, but things are, are, are the, the, the payments are capped. And yeah. a lot of the pain and suffering that you would normally uh, be covered for and, and be able to expect uh, the insurance company to step forward and and, and uh, do the, the, the job that we would hope of them um, yeah. are, are just not covered anymore. And okay. it's really, really frustrating. And it's, it's, it's upsetting that we've got this government-run insurance company and now that we, you know, dem- democracy, we chose to have it. And now they've turned yeah. around and taken away all of these benefits. Paul, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.